Once I have eyes on me, then I can give my announcement. Thank you. You could tell I. Anyway, there was a woman that came Sunday to church, a young woman. And as I was talking to her, she had mentioned to me that she would love to come Wednesday nights for Bible study. She's a single mom, but um, we have no child care. So in thinking about it, I thought, we have a closet full of really good Christian videos that are Bible story, right from the Bible videos. And although it's not my first choice to stick a kid in front of a screen, and it, it's OK to do that sometimes, because they'd be in front of a screen at home anyway. So I talked to Debbie about um, seeing if we can't get some people to sign up to maybe once a month, if we get enough people to sign up once every two months to give up an hour of your time and sit with the kids, turn the video on for them. You don't have to do any teaching. We even have a closet full of games that they could play, color sheets. Just we need a grown-up in there, obviously, with the kids if they're here. I don't know how many kids she has. I don't know the ages of the kids she has. But my heart really wants to provide this time for her to be able to come and connect. And I'm not even knowing if she's going to show up. But I'd just like to tell her that, you know, we've got some people that are willing to help you out. So is what I'm going to do is put this piece of paper with this pin on the um, little podium thing back there. And if this is something you think you'd like to do, to just sign your name up. And then we'll get in touch with you. And I don't, it doesn't have to be an organized thing. It doesn't have to be so and so is going to be here this Wednesday and that Wednesday. It's just that if she or anybody shows up with kids, then we could say, hey, could you have the kids tonight? So that's my spill. And I'm just really praying that we can meet this need. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Where have I seen you before? <laughs> it was like I was just here. <laughs> yeah, I was. And I'll be back this Sunday again, and then next Wednesday again. So if you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40, Life of Joseph. As I've been saying all along, I would say, again, that Joseph, um, you've heard the phrase poster child. Joseph is the poster child for the Christian who goes through times of affliction, and we all do, wondering what the sense of it all is. Like, Lord, why would you allow this? Why would you permit um, this unexpected crisis or violation or misunderstanding to happen to me or to happen to my family or my friends? There's no, there's no sense to it. And at times the Lord seems very quiet in those moments. And then in time... Um, as we see with Joseph, um, many of us look back and we can see God's footprints. You know, that whole uh, picture of God's footprints in the sand. We can see that God was work, at work the whole time, yet when we really needed him or wanted an answer, he was silent. That's Joseph. We see that this young man goes through crisis and difficulties, periods of darkness, starting at the age of 17. 
that were far beyond most of what all of us have gone through together in this room. And yet, just in the nick of time, whether it was his brothers throwing him in the pit, and all of a sudden, um, merchants on the way to Egypt were passing by right at that moment, and then they took him to Egypt. Or it could have been the time when, um, as he was a slave a second time, his brother sold him as a slave the first time, and then when he arrived in Egypt, he was sold as a slave the second time to Potiphar, the captain of the guard. Every time we see that Joe, Joseph took a setback or a tremendous disappointment, we read that the Lord was with him. But God was with him. Or God gave him favor with his master. Or in prison. Everything he put his hand to, God blessed. And so you would think that things would get better. But on one occasion, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he was minding his own business, being very faithful to the captain of the guard, who was Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's right-hand men. And uh, Potiphar's wife tried to accost Joseph and grabbed him by his robe and said, come lie with me. And by the way, in Genesis it said, she spoke to Joseph and asked him to do that every day. Every day in his face. Trying to lure him away. And of course Joseph said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Well, she was a woman scorned. She got furious tried to grab Joseph and he left his robe in her hands. That's how fast he got out of there. And she went to her husband and lied to him and said, Joseph tried to rape me. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Because although he acted like he believed his wife, I have evidence tonight that he didn't. And shouldn't have. She probably had a reputation at that point. However, Joseph then is severely disciplined, not for what he did right, but not be, uh, for doing, he didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right, and he was still thrown into the pit. See, above the dungeon was Potiphar's house, and it was like a palace, and that's where Joseph served. Now, he's thrown in the pit for doing the right thing. Not the wrong thing. And we even find that when he was in the pit, the Lord was with him. It's like a song. It's like a chorus of a song. The darker it got, the louder the refrain was, but the Lord was with Joseph. It's an amazing story. And then again, tonight, we're probably going to find Joseph as at his lowest moment. You would think he would have had hit his lowest, the bottom already. We're going to see it again. And how God intervenes in his hand again. So I'm going to talk about God's presence or providence in his waiting room. Anybody ever been in God's waiting room? Very interesting place. That's the place where God, you're crying out to God to answer your prayer and give you a yes. And he doesn't give you a yes. And he doesn't give you a no. It's not a green light. It's not a red light. It's a yellow white light that takes a long time to change green. Takes patience. He just simply says, wait. Now, a good example of this is if you go to, uh, if you have a doctor's visit, you go and you're sitting in the waiting room. Just the next time you do this to remember this text, just observe the people around you. Everybody waits differently. And it's no different with the Lord when he puts us in his waiting room. 
Some people are totally at peace and they just read a book without a care in the world. The doctor could be running late and they are just so content to wait. Other people are pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Anxiety and worry. Some still yet, and I kind of lean, my, my DNA leans a little bit towards this, but no one else in the room would ever do this. I actually walk up to the counter and find out what's going on. But no one, that's just me. No one at Butte Creek does that. When I, when I, was, a, I was a pastor at the Nazarene Church for five years, or excuse me, yeah, five years in Medford, the one on McAndrews, and I did most of their counseling and, and preaching and teaching, and uh, um, the administrative pastor, his name was Lawrence, and he was really an impatient guy, and uh, happened to be my boss on top of it, but really impatient guy, and he went to the doctors one time, he said, and the doctor, uh, it was going on 30 to 45 minutes, and so he left. And uh, he got a bill from the doctor. <laughs> and he called the doctor. And he said, I left my job to come here. And I waited almost 45 minutes and you send me a bill. I actually need to send you a bill. And the doctor said, I'm sorry, sir. And he wrote it off. But you see people like us that want answers. So there's different ways that people wait on the Lord as well. And what we do in a real doctor's office seems to carry over in how we wait on God. Impatience. Anxiety. Wondering if he's going to come through. <laughs> Or they give you a sleeping pill so you can go to sleep that night. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was a pastor in the Anglican Church of England, and he was cut, they referred to that as the High Church. And John Bunyan started preaching the gospel. He preached it for 12 years, and his message was one of not of good works, but of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. The leaders of the church and the magistrates of his village told him to stop preaching a contrary message or he would be in trouble. He kept preaching and he was sentenced to prison and actually was sent to prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel. There wasn't much in his cell. We know that there was probably a, a, a rough place to sleep and he had a four-legged stool. And there he was in God's waiting room. Not for doing what was wrong, but for doing what was right. And he got the idea and he took off one of the four legs a four-legged stool and he carved it into a flute and he was able you we all know we can sit on a three-legged stool he made it into a three-legged stool and he made a flute and he started worshiping daily and playing music to the Lord if God has your life on hold right now, it's not a time to twiddle your thumbs and look at the walls of your life. Nothing changes. Well, that's a different sermon. Nothing changes if nothing changes. That's true. But nothing should change our love, our faith, our worship, our life, what we do if we're ministering, how we live with our spouse, how we raise our kids, how we work at work, we continue that on even in God's 
waiting room. To sit there and complain and whine would be a waste of time. They would do no good for us whatsoever. And so if you're there and you feel like you're on hold or you're waiting for your ship to come in or for the Lord to heal you or for reconciliation with one of your adult kids that's away, wait patiently and continue to play your flute as unto the sovereign king of kings. Amen. That's what we learn about Joseph. Um, he was sent into the pit of the pit. But God was using him there. Chapter 40, verse 1. Let's begin our time. And it's interesting enough because the first four words of this verse in John 40 talks about time frame. This is a common phrase we see in Joseph's life. Sometime after this. Now we don't know how long it was that he was in that pit. We know that he's going to continue to remain in that pit, as we'll find out through the story, another two years. But it says sometime after this. He was sent away at 17. He was freed when he was 30. He was in God's waiting room for 13 years. 13 years. The Lord was with them in it all. And there he is. Gaining God's favor. Being promoted. Attractive to his leadership. It is written that when God is forging out his will in our lives, it always takes more time than we want. According to my watch, he runs late. I think I've told you that before. God is very tardy, according to my watch. He never runs late. He runs precisely on time, as we're going to see this evening. And his goal is to change us in the process. The longer we wait, the longer the pressure is on and the trial heats up, that is for the purpose of him changing who we are on the inside to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. That just doesn't happen apart from suffering. I wish there was a shorter cut, don't you? Does anybody know of any other way to grow and mature in Christ other than pain? Just let us know if you find a way because we're looking for it. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. Here's the situation. Uh, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, you need to know something. The cupbearer was the king's closest confidant. There wasn't another person he trusted more in his kingdom than the cupbearer. Does anybody know why? He tasted the food first, and the baker would as well, the one that baked the food, tasted the food, and he would drink the wine to see if it was spiked, and there was poison. And so he had to have someone trusted in order to taste it, you know, and say, this doesn't taste right, king, or um, I'm about to check out because there was poison in this one, or whatever. But the baker and the cupbearer, there were no more trusted people. These two men were closest to the king. Isn't it interesting? Now God's working behind the scenes. Joseph's there. Two of the closest people to the king, to Pharaoh, the one who will eventually set him free. Those two people are sent directly to Joseph. God's working. He's preparing Joseph for his deliverance someday. 
a phrase from Dr. Walkie. Dr. Walkie is a, a theologian and is, he's about 95 now. He used to come to the valley. When I was at Cornerstone, one of the other churches I pastored at uh, for 15 years, he was a frequent guest speaker. And I, this guy was a grandpa, an anointed grandpa. I would pick him up from the airport and I thought I was you know, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I don't want to sound blasphemous, but boy, he was something else. And he wrote, he probably to this day has written one of the best commentaries known on the book of Genesis. So if you ask anybody that's in a theology, they'll know his name. And this is what he says about this scene. Joseph is given oversight to those who have immediate access to the king. And then he says, he attends those who attended Pharaoh. Why? Because the Lord is getting ready to do something magnificent. Despite Joseph's unfair treatment. We read in verse 4 that the men there were awaiting... They were in custody. We don't know what they did wrong to Pharaoh to get him so angry, but they were awaiting custody and sentencing. Amazing. Look at verse 5 with me. Oh, look at verse 4. This is, this is what got my attention. I want to bring it up to you. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him. The captain of the guard. Who was that? Anybody know? Remember his name? Potiphar. Potiphar. The man that bought Joseph as a slave who saw that God's hand was on him. It actually says that Potiphar knew the Lord favored Joseph is the same Potiphar that threw him into prison, the pit, because his wife claimed that Joseph raped her. Now why would Potiphar, who believes that Joseph, who believed possibly that his wife was telling the truth, and Joseph tried to rape his wife, why would he ask Joseph, why would he appoint Joseph to take care of Pharaoh's two leading men. Why would he do that? What do you think? What's that? Set him up. Possibly set him up? Yes. Someone else? Pardon me? He knew how honest he was. He trusted him. Which goes back to our original gut feeling about Potiphar's wife. He didn't trust her. And why did he throw Joseph in there? That's another thing we talked about. Keep the peace. Oh, that's right. And then I told you, then I gave you a little spiel about uh, that's when you don't need to keep the peace in the home. When you're covering up sin, that's not called keeping peace. That's called fear of wrath. So we know that he still had confidence in Joseph. So he really didn't believe his wife. And so, here they are, cupbearer. Go back to verse 2. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. They were literally officers. They were, they were uh, leaders. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And he attended them. They continued for some time again. There's another time frame. We always hear this in the life of Joseph. There's always time. There's always waiting. We don't know exactly when this is going to end. Which forces Joseph to trust. To trust the Lord. All the way through it. Then we hear... Um, in verse 5, that one night, these two new prisoners both had a dream. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, 
who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Now, when we read about them having, first, first of all, let me say that Joseph had two dreams that he foolishly shared with his brother and his parents, which told them they, he would rule over them. And I believe he paid a price for that, at least initially. They were dreams from the Lord. He had two dreams that he foolishly shared with his family, or was it foolishly? These two prisoners have two dreams each, and then later on in the story, Pharaoh has two dreams. Joseph interprets the prisoner's dreams. He interpreted the first two dreams with his family, and he's going to interpret Pharaoh's dreams as well. And it's really interesting because two dreams in the Old Testament, we're going to read a verse right now to prove it, are significant. Joseph has two sets, the cupbearer has two sets, and Pharaoh has two sets. And these two sets of dreams established that God's going to do something new. So just flip one page over to chapter 41. I wanted to show you something. Chapter 41. There's always a purpose for everything that's written in the scripture. Look at chapter 41, verse 32. And we read the significance of two dreams. 41 to 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Isn't that interesting? But I'm warning you against dreams. I've told you that before. You know, a lot of people eat pizza late at night and then they have a vision from the Lord. I don't know if it's the right vision though. Or a real bad vision. But the Lord can talk to us through dreams too. Don't, I'm not minimizing that. So two dreams in the Old Testament mean, meant that jo the Lord was going to shortly bring change and do something new, which is exactly what he did every time. So they both had a dream that night. Now look at verse 6. It's a very fascinating verse. Joseph's appointed this position now. He's appointed it by the guy who threw him in that pit. When Joseph came to them in the morning... He saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces so downcast today? Now there's a sensitive man. There's a compassionate man. He notices something differently in their countenance and he has enough empathy to inquire why they're sad. One thing we know about affliction and trial and suffering for the child of God is it's supposed to make us more compassionate and empathetic to other people. You ever notice that? People who really hasn't, haven't suffered frequently have empathy. It's more like, oh, just get over it. I have found, you know, I, I've told you this before, I've gone to the unfortunate and wanted and timely event of divorce 22 years ago. But the people that never had divorce touch their family were less than kind. Until, until what? It happened to their family. Now there's compassion. I was a really green, relatively young pastor in Eureka, California. I probably only had been a senior pastor for three months. And I got my first phone call that there had been a heart attack with one of the lovely gentlemen in my church. He was on his way to dinner with his wife of 45 years and his uh, son and his son's wife, I believe. And he had a very severe heart attack. By the time I got there in the hospital, uh, he was probably mid-80s. I went into his room and he, he was in extreme pain. His face was gray. Then he was dying. 
I went back then into the waiting room to try to console his wife, praying that God would resurrect him and heal him. And while I was talking to her, a physician with a clinical cold face came in and said to her, ma'am, your husband's dead. You need to start making arrangements for what you need to do next. And he walked out. I was horrified. Horrified as a young pastor. Is there such lack of compassion in the world as this? Two years later, that same physician um, had a wife and she was jogging through the streets of Eureka, was hit by a car and was instantly killed. A year after that, there was a young man in my church. He was only about 42. His wife was about the same. They were charming people. I loved them deeply. And he got liver cancer. So he was taken to the hospital. They took out a part of his liver. Liver is one of the organs that grow back in time. And so they cut out a big chunk of his liver. And uh, uh, it, it, it was too late. And so I went to the hospital. He passed away. His wife was weeping. I was with her. That same doctor came in. The one who was cold and sterile, clinical, who has now lost a wife. He got down on one knee. He held that grieving widow's hand and said, I'm sorry. It's out of our own suffering and pain that we have compassion and empathy. And if you don't have compassion and empathy and you belong to Jesus, you will get it but it will come from pain and loss. And so Joseph shows concern. Now there's another passage and then I'll move on. It's out of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. And Paul, in essence, says the same thing about our suffering in Christ. Listen to this one. We go through afflictions... Okay, so any of you that are in affliction and trial right now, there's a purpose for all of them. We go through afflictions so we can comfort those who go through any affliction with the same comfort we receive from Christ. So for those of you who are doing what's most natural to our flesh, and that's resisting the pain, hoping that the Lord will lift the trial. Know this. If the Lord chooses to not intervene yet, and we're going to see that he doesn't intervene yet with Joseph here in a little bit as well, um, you are going to be able someday to get on your knee like that doctor did and hold the feeble hand of a grieving widow and really mean it when you say I'm sorry. Just know that. God's, there's a purpose in it. Okay? There's a purpose in loss. Uh, I uh, when I was in Bible college, there was a book that was out. This was in the mid-70s. And I, all I remember is the title. It was called, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. Do you know that the Bible also says that the Lord catches all of our tears in a bottle? There is not a tear you have shed that God does not want you to use in the life of someone else through compassion. Nothing is wasted. Like nothing is wasted. I mean, when the disciples went with Jesus out on a boat to go fishing one time, or before they went fishing, when he was feeding the 5,000 rather, there were 12 basketfuls of bread and fish left over, and the Lord Jesus said, save those baskets. We can use them for later. And then, 
They forgot to do it. They forgot to do it. Jesus asked them for the baskets and the loaves and the fishes later on, and they said, we forgot the baskets. They probably had ADD like I do. <laughs> Lose things all the time, forget what they were supposed to do. The Lord told them to save the bread and the fish, and they forgot to bring the baskets on the boat. The point is, God wastes nothing. Not even loaves and fishes. Or our tears. Now, let's get into the first dream. Um, verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph says something very interesting here. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Now, the interesting thing to me is he didn't say that to his brothers. At 17, he was given two dreams and he blurted them out. And they were bitter. How do I know that? When Joseph was told to go find out where their brother was and bring back a report, they saw him and they said, here comes that dreamer. They didn't appreciate it. But now, I could be wrong, but it feels like Joseph is a little softer, a little wiser, a little more grown up through his pain. And he said, oh, all interpretations belong to God. And then they said, please tell him to me. And he proceeded. Dream number one. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blo its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. In three days, the handcuffs are coming off and you're going to be restored to your position. And in exactly three days, that's what precisely happened. The next two verses are two of the most significant verses in the life of Joseph here. So before I read them, let me say that the moment Joseph knew that that was the interpretation of the dream for the cupbearer, Pharaoh's right-hand man, Joseph had to think, he is my ticket out of my devastating trial. This is God. He's going to set me free. He's my ticket. I knew he was going to act eventually. I knew the Lord would get me up out of this unjust dungeon. This is my time for freedom. Right? Wrong. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says to the cupbearer, only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For, I want you to think of this verse because I'm going to ask a question, this next one. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Is this true? Is that a true statement? Yes. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Is that a true statement? 
Where do you think Joseph's coming from? What is he trying to say here? Get me out of here. I'm innocent. I've done nothing to deserve to be in this place. And yet, God doesn't let him out yet. Look at verse uh, 23. But before I read it, let me say, he gave one request. One. It wasn't long. It was clear. I've been unjustly put here. Please remember me. Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Look at verse 1, chapter 41. And after two whole years. So here Joseph is put in a place that he didn't deserve to be in. He thought for sure, this is my way home. Why would the Lord keep him there two more years? Anybody want to stab at stab it? He had to learn some more things. He wasn't finished with them yet. All of you ladies know what happens when you take a lasagna out of the oven too early. You take the uh, oven out of lasagna when it's 450. But if it's not been in long enough, the pasta's hard, sauce is runny, and it needs to go back in the oven. You know, God not only seems to run late, but he seems to not be finished long before we are with his will and his circumstances. Amen? And, and, and the purpose of that is what? Making us into the image of Christ, growth. He's dying for us. Just say, Father, I trust you. I taught at a marriage retreat on Saturday. My message was marriage. In 1 Peter chapter 2, this is just a little sidebar. I already have this in my notes. No charge. Peter's telling his readers about Calvary. First uh, Peter, the theme of First Peter is suffering. And he told his readers that we, Christ suffered so that we may learn to suffer like him. That's the actual verse. Christ suffered so that we may learn to suffer like him. And then Peter said, when Jesus was persecuted and reviled, he did not revile in turn, yet he entrusted himself into the hands of his father. The scary thing about that, guys, is a few verses after that, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way because they are co-heirs of the gift of life and it's important that you do this. You show compassion to your wife in pain in your marriage so that it doesn't hinder your prayers. 
not one of my favorite verses, but <laughs> it's true. It's true. So the key verse there is that Jesus did not revile. But instead, he didn't mock them back. You know, you push me, I push you. He didn't push back. But instead, he entrusted himself into the hands of his father. Man, if we hear nothing else tonight, we must hear that. That's the only place to go. As you look back through the corridor of your life, I mean, there was no one, well, I shouldn't say that. Joseph had disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. His brothers, his flesh and blood threw him in a pit to die. His beloved master, Potiphar, who knew God was blessing him because of Joseph, at least at that point acted like he believed his wife and threw him into the hole. God blesses him through all of it, lifts him up out of all of it, and now the cupbearer forgets him. I think you and I need to stop whining. I really do. How about saying, Lord, despite the pain and the confusion, I trust you. Lord has to help us do that. That's not natural. You know that. We already know that's not natural. Okay. The baker's dream. A little more serious. You know, when you read stuff like this, you go, oh my gosh, this is not an antiquated book. This sounds like the news of the day. Violence, blood, immorality, twisted thinking, greed. Like tomorrow's newspaper. Verse 16. When the chief, chief bakers saw that the interpretation was favorable, well, he's thinking, saying, all right, the cupbearer is going to be able to go back. What's my dream interpretation, Joseph? Not so much. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There was three cakes of baskets on my head. Very common, by the way. Um, picture in hieroglyphics if you were to go to Egypt and you see all these carvings in the pyramid walls it's very common to see you know someone walking with three cakes on their head they had 57 different cakes in Egypt at that time and 27 different types of pastries just a little sidebar in the uppermost basket he says there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head. And Joseph, by the way, the baker in the dream wasn't doing anything about it. He was passively allowing it to happen. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. So that's pretty gory stuff. And guess what happened three days later? That very thing. Cup bearer went back. Cup was put in his hand. Baker goes back. Taken to the gallows. By the way, I, I heard one pastor say, uh, Isn't that interesting? Not very many people get a precise amount of time to know when you will die. And I wonder what he thought. 
Joseph was a man of faith. He said, don't my interpretations belong to God? All interpretations. He was a man of faith. I wonder what this guy thought. He had three days left to live. Let's read on. Uh, on the third day, day three, like predicted in both dreams, which was Pharaoh's birthday. By the way, I know of no other uh, passage in Scripture that even mentions birthday than a party was thrown for Herod in the New Testament, his birthday party. The only two birthday parties I know of in Scripture was for two wicked kings, interestingly enough. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a birthday party. Um, when, I have, when my birthday comes, I celebrate for a month, so have a birthday party. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all the servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, restored him, and the head of the chief cupbearer among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And the very next portion of the next verse, which we'll talk about next week, is after two whole years. To which I say, I'll just give you a little sneak preview. You know, Lord, all you would have had to do was wake up the cup there in the middle of the night and just, or give him a dream to remember. Is just but you allowed, you know how when people forget, we get irritated. They don't remember something we told them to do. Maybe the Lord's allowing them to forget. Maybe he wants to see if we're going to be patient. Look at this couple elbowing each other here. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's chemo brain. I see. At least you have something to blame it on. <laughs> After two whole years to be in God's waiting room. I mean, I can just feel the disappointment in Joseph. He had so much hope. Disappointment. I got a good, I saw, I read a good, or I, I saw a good word picture of when you lose your hope back into the days, and very common in this area, of, of lumbering, I mean, um, falling trees with horses, having to go up a big hill, put chains around the big logs, chokers. I'm from San Francisco, so I don't know these things. <laughs> Dragging those logs up the hill. Two feet left, and the chain breaks. That's discouragement and disappointment. That's an even a worse disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. You can just feel Joseph's heart sink. Dr. Helen was in the Congo during an uprising and rebellion in the 1960s, Africa. Missionaries were being slaughtered. She and some other women were brutalized and a couple of her dear missionary friends were shot in the head right before her eyes and kicked into a grave. 
She was an acquaintance with one of my favorite pastors. I don't know if you've listened to the station. It's 107.1 FM, but Alistair Begg, if you ever heard of Alistair Begg, probably one of the best teaching pastors on the radio anywhere. He's a pastor. He's from Scotland. He has a church in Ohio. And uh, she came and spoke at his church. And shortly after that, she wrote him a letter. And this is a phrase that she said in her letter. Don't, now, don't forget. We're talking about not seeing any potential hope on the horizon. Like there's dark clouds everywhere. There are no sun rays. And two more years later, and Joseph was forgotten. Those kinds of days. And she writes these words. She wrote these words in, in the greatest need of her life in the Congo with all of this brutality. The Lord asked her a question. And I leave it with us. Can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? Can you? Can we say, God, you know more than I how much I hurt. You know the doubts that I've had in the darkness of my soul. but I thank you anyway. Even if I don't get the answer until I get on the golden shores and then it doesn't matter. So I challenge all of us. And if you look back towards the quarters of your life, I forgot what I was going to finish saying when I said that. Who has lived you, left you in your memory with the greatest disappointment of your life? Which one, two, three, four, five people? Which family member? Which coworker? Which parent? Which individual that used you or stole from you have left you with the biggest, it's usually family members, that have left you with the biggest appointment, disappointment in your life? And God wants you to still trust him. Even if you don't know exactly why. Amen. Lord, we want to just tell you in a new way. Because of your work in our life. Because you sacrificed yourself for our sin. And because there's still an empty tomb today, just a quarter of a mile outside of Jerusalem, we trust you. You've proven to us so many times that you're at work and that you have not forgotten. You have not forgotten us. And so now, Lord, we just put our hand in yours again and ask you to help us believe that you're at work and you're still our sovereign, gracious Savior. And for anyone here tonight, we would pray for anyone here tonight, all of us, that is having a particularly harsh season that your grace would be sufficient and that you would draw closer to them and their pain. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Blessings on all of you. See you next week. See you Sunday. I'll be back Sunday. Hang on. How many of you guys appreciate uh, Pastor Bill here tonight? Thank you. He's going to be here Sunday morning and give Sunday morning's message and then he'll also be here again next week. A challenge. Let's all 
try to invite one person for next Wednesday night. One week from tonight, try to a neighbor or they may go to a different church or anything. You know, a neighbor, friend, family. Let's try to invite one person each. And let's see if we can fill this sanctuary on Wednesday night. It'd be fun, wouldn't it? It'd be awesome. You think we could do it? Sure. Let's, let's give it a go. God bless y'all. Is this time for dessert? Yeah. <laughs>